want you to come with me, please, in the Word of God, to Luke chapter 15. It's not really a message for Sunday morning, per se, uh, but I really just could not get away from it for whatever reason this week, and I feel I've got to share it. It's quite familiar, obviously. A few stories in the Bible stir the imagination more than the prodigal son. Even hardened sinners have been known to melt uh, when they listen to this wonderful drama unfold. Strictly speaking, it's part of a trilogy of parables that Jesus spoke. Uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And each one of those, of course, is a sermon on its own. Uh, but the prodigal son, more often than not, is a standalone message. And oftentimes it's preached like that, as I will do this morning. And even though these... Uh, Three messages uh, would normally go together, uh, yet this morning I particularly want to focus uh, on the attitudes and the actions of the Father in Luke 15. Uh, this particular parable has often been described as the prince of parables, or the pearl and the crown of all parables. Charles Dickens simply said it was the finest story, finest short story that has ever been written. And so, first of all, let me give you the context of the story. Someone has said that the key to this parable hangs on the front door. So let's just read the first three verses just to get the setting for the parable. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them, saying. Now this was uh, towards the end of Christ's public ministry. It was drawing to a close. And uh, he had drawn towards himself many publicans or tax collectors and sinners. And of course the scribes and the Pharisees absolutely despised him for that. Uh, as far as they were concerned, they were not worthy even to associate with and Jesus very readily associated with them and mixed with them, ate with them and dined with them in order to try to win them and help them. And of course, the more he denounced the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, uh, then the more they hated him and their anger and opposition was aroused greatly towards him. And through this parable, uh, actually this triple parable, which really is one parable with three different aspects, because Jesus is hammering home the same point again and again and again. What was his point? Well, his point was simply this, that as he loved the publicans and the sinners, so the father in this story of the prodigal loved his wayward son who had messed up so terribly, but the father was so willing to forgive him and to get his life back on track. And of course, the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, they fit into the image of the elder brother. Whenever the son came back and the father showed his grace and forgave, the elder brother stood outside him as hard and unforgiving and self-righteous and smug and patronizing, all that 
That was an image of those scribes and Pharisees who hated the publicans and sinners and did not certainly want God to have anything to do with them. And so that is the context of the story. So let's have a little look then at the content. Now, leaving, of course, uh, aside the other two portions of the parable, uh, let's break in here at verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Now, whenever Jesus said this, understand that knowing this culture well, knowing exactly how the scribes and the Pharisees would feel, he deliberately chose this story. Well, it was a true story or not, we're not sure. Perhaps he did know a father who had two sons and was acquainted with this story intimately and privately, we're not sure. But certainly he knew it would be hard-hitting, and it was. And whenever he said that this son, uh, in a sense, demanded his inheritance, even before his father was dead and buried, they would be aghast at that. They would be absolutely shocked to the core that anybody would do such a thing as that. Uh, obviously, his inheritance would come in time, and obviously the father had no... Uh, well, he had an option. He could give him or not give him it, but he, he wasn't commanded to give him. There was no law to have to give this, but he gave it anyway. But the idea of this young man, the, the audacity of him, the nerve, the callousness, the hard-heartedness of him, knowing how this would crush his father, because in effect it was saying, Dad, I can't wait till you're dead to get my hands on your money. In effect, that's what that was saying. And so it must have hurt the father. So you can understand when the scribes and the Pharisees heard this, I mean, they, they, they were roused with this. This would anger them to think that any young man would do such a horrible thing as this. And so we see here that the father never questioned it. He could have. He could have said, no, you'll have to wait. But for whatever reason, he chose not to. Even though he was hurting in the inside, even though he was insulted greatly, uh, he decided he would go ahead and give him what he wanted. And notice here how he divided onto them their inheritance. And so not wishing then to offend the elder brother, uh, he gave them both uh, an inheritance. Obviously the land couldn't have eaten about it up at this time, but he had given whatever would be sellable or movable or money or whatever, uh, he gave them uh, their inheritance. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country. Before this young man had ever been physically to the far country, he had been there many, many, many times in his imagination, in his thinking, in his dreams. He had thought about it for months and months, maybe even for years. There was something that was attracting him to the far country. Uh, perhaps he was bored in the father's house. The routine of it, the daily ho-hum, 
the predictability of just getting up every day and doing the same thing over and over and over again. And he just got to the place where he just didn't want to do this another day because there was excitement out there. There was a thrill out there. He thought about it. If he'd only get to the big city, life would be wonderful. It would be exciting and challenging. And maybe if he had some money, he could start a business up in one of these cities and get a shop on High Street or do something, anything, only be in the Father's house. And so he set off and journeyed to the far country. And then very quickly Jesus said, there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Prodigal just means wasteful. He had a lot of money in his pocket. He was a young country boy in the big city. Wasn't streetwise. Couldn't wait to spend his money. If he had any thoughts of starting up a business, it could wait. But he had some money, he was going to spend it. He'd go to the bars. He'd go to the clubs. He'd get lots of mates, lots of friends when you've got lots of money. And for a while, that's how it was. He'd sow his wild oats. He'd enjoy himself to the full. He'd be having a wonderful time. But it wasn't too long before the money began to run out. And as the money ran out, his friends ran off. And then suddenly he was finding himself quite alone in the big city, far from home, with no friends, and now with no money. Not a good place to be, sure it's not. But when he had spent all, just when he thought things couldn't get any worse, they did. When he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. So now he has no money, he's broke, he's no friends, he's far from home. And just when his money runs out, a great famine strikes. And how many knows that the law of supply and demand is great? Great demand, little supply food stuff, the price goes through the roof. And not only that, he had nothing. And now he's hungry. And there's nowhere to live. And he's living rough on the streets. And as he beds down, probably underneath some building somewhere at night, he can't sleep because his belly is rumbling with hunger pangs. So he's got to do something, anything, Got to survive. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. A good Jewish boy feeding swine. It must have been humiliating, embarrassing. He must have thought, if only my folks back home could see what I'm doing right now, they'd be so ashamed working in a piggery as a Jew. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. He's hit hard times. 
This is rock bottom. Even wanted to eat the very food the pigs were eating and nobody would even give them a carb pod to eat. That's how bad it was. But thank God, when it got really bad, when he got to the end of his tether, thank God, he began to change. And oftentimes, that's when the prodigal changes, when they get to the end of their tether. When they have tried everything possible and nothing is working. So it says in verse 17, and when he came to himself, we would say when he wised up, when he caught himself on, when he came to himself, when he came to that realization, my life is a complete and utter mess. I have failed miserably. When he got to that place, he began to change. Many a man or woman or young person has got to get to that place before they change. And if you're praying for a prodigal, you pray that they get to that place fast. Because while they have some money in their pocket and while they're enjoying themselves, while everything seems to be going well, there's no thought of the Father's house. Often it's only when they get to rock bottom that they begin to think again. So he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he wondered, what can I say to my dad? I've shamed him. I've been an awful son to him. My name is mud in my community, but I need to go back. But what can I say to dad? What can I say that will make it right? Well, the very least I can say, he must have thought this out in his mind, the least I can say is I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. This is repentance. Not just sorry he's in that state, but truly sorry that he sinned against his dad and he sinned against heaven. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. How could I even dare to be called your son? Just make me as a hard servant. That's all I ask. That's the most I can ask. And so here he got to this place of repentance. And then in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, when he was still a great way off, from the standpoint of human reasoning, he was a great way off. And from his point of view, it would be a long way back. Now, I'm not just talking here about the miles in between. He could make that journey. But emotionally, spiritually, relationally. In his mind, it was a long way off. It was going to be a tough journey. That's what he was thinking. It was a long way off. But how does God see that? 
In Ephesians 2, verse 13, you don't need to turn to this if you don't want to, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. In Acts chapter 2. Verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to those who are afar off and as many as the Lord our God will call. Actually, even though the prodigal felt he was afar off spiritually, emotionally, relationally with the Father, but actually he was closer than he thought. Because once he repented, once he changed his mind and his heart and set out to the Father's house, he was closer than he thought. He had no idea that the Father would be welcoming him. He had no idea the reception that the Father was going to give him. Probably he had other ideas in his mind what it was going to be. That would be terrible. But the Father had another image in his mind if the Son would ever come back. And so it says in verse 20, his Father saw him. The Father saw him before he saw the Father. Long before he saw the Father, the Father was out there watching probably every evening. He would go out in the evening time before the sun would set and he would stand in that same spot evening after evening after evening and he'd watch the distant horizon, watch that old twisty road to see if that little dot would appear that possibly, hopefully, would be his son. And so before he ever saw the Father, the Father saw him because the Father was watching for him. Before he ever repented, the Father was watching for him. Before he ever changed his mind, the Father was watching for him, eagerly waiting and wanting him to come back, willing him to come back to the Father's house. God sees the man or the woman even when they're in the far country. And he sees them when they repent and he sees them when they're returning home. I don't know how long that journey takes. It's different for everybody. Some people, it takes them a long time even to repent. And sometimes when they do repent, it takes them quite a while to come to the Father's house again because they feel they have just so messed up. They're just so unworthy that nobody would want them. Nobody would want to see them back at the Father's house. So sometimes it takes a little while before they come back. So here's the son, and he's coming back. In verse 20 it says, The Father saw him and had compassion on him. The Father's heart was just so full of compassion. In fact, he was moved with compassion. It was compassion that got the Father to stand in that spot 
night after night after night after night, week after week, month after month, waiting and watching. It was his compassionate heart did that. So he's a heart full of compassion, not of contempt, of pardon, not of punishment. It says he ran, fell on his neck, and he kissed him. Dirty, smelly, sweaty, but he kissed him repeatedly. James 4 and 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God is more willing to forgive than we can ever imagine, isn't he? He's more willing to pardon. He's more willing to give us another opportunity, a fresh start than we can ever imagine. This is the wonderful grace of God beyond our comprehension. This is the grace of God. And this is what Jesus, why Jesus was telling the people the story for. He was trying to show the grace of God, how wonderful it is. Why do you suppose the Father was in such a hurry to get to him? He ran towards him. I always wondered that, wondered that for years. Until I heard Jeff Lucas give an explanation, which I thought was wonderful. He said the custom was in those days that if the prodigal had to come back into the village, that the village elders would have got together and they would have tried him. And they would have treated him with utter contempt. And not only that, they'd have thrown him out of the village. They would not let him or would not allow him to come home again. Because not only was the father shamed, but the whole village would be shamed. Maybe we just don't fully grasp what this young man had done and how it affected the whole community that he was involved in. But they understood. But if the father could get to him first, and if the father could get to him and he could forgive him, then it didn't matter what they said. And so the father waited and waited and waited. And as soon as he saw him, he ran towards him. An old man, but he girded up his loins and he ran towards him and he embraced him and he hugged him and he kissed him before he could be judged. The Bible says that mercy triumphs over judgment. Because those elders would only have judged him and condemned him. But the father wanted to forgive him. And he had compassion upon him. And he embraced him. Jesus said in John 6, 37, The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Aren't you glad for that? Then in verse 21 it says, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight... And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he never got to finish his well-rehearsed speech. I wonder how many times he said that over and over and over again in his mind. He had it well-rehearsed. His heart was probably pounding out of his chest 
when he was walking those roads, imagining what would the father say? Will he take me back? Have I made him so ashamed that he will cast me away? You know, just this week, I was reading how a Pakistani family living in Warrington, Cheshire, how the mom and dad killed their 17-year-old daughter. They smothered her to death in front of their other four children because she was too westernized. She was too westernized. She had bought in too much to the culture of the West, they said. And so, they said, it shamed them and their family and their community. And so, out of honor, they killed their own 17-year-old daughter. What kind of twisted, awful logic would that be? What kind of honor would be killing your own child? In fact, the judge in sentencing them said you cared more about your community than you cared about your own daughter. The judge said, in effect, why did you not bring her up in rural Pakistan rather than Warrington in England? where the chances were that she'd be westernized. And you know what made the story worse? They found out at the trial that the father was a complete hypocrite because he himself, when he was young, turned down an arranged marriage and married a Danish woman. And then after years, eventually had an arranged marriage and dumped the Danish woman and entered into arranged marriage and came and lived in England. What a hypocrite. Where's the love? Where's the compassion? What a difference between this Christian story we see in the Bible. Where the Father forgave and had compassion upon his wayward son who left his community, who got caught up in the ideals of that world that was in the big city. But when he came back, the Father loved him. I want you now to see the gifts that the Father lavished upon him. Alexander McLaren said, God's giving always follows his forgiving. He always gives when he forgives. And he does. Verse 22 to 24, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to make merry. The robe, bring out the best robe and put it on him. The far country had reduced him to rags. He came in rags. And the father took one look at him and said, get the best robe. 
the richest robe, the special robe. Not just any old robe, but the best one. The robe represents righteousness, often does in Scripture. Isaiah 61 and 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bride decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Way back in the book of uh, Zechariah, Chapter 3, you don't need to turn to this. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. The robe often stands for righteousness. In Revelation 19, there's a wonderful image of the saints of God dressed in white robes of righteousness. <laughs> so he came back and he wore the clothes of his son, not of his slave. Completely and utterly forgiven. And then the ring, he says, put a ring on his hand. The ring of reconciliation. The ring of authority. Fully reconciled back to the father and to the family. He says, put a ring on his hand. The ring of the family had the family crest, the family seal. When important papers would be signed and sent, they would seal it with wax in the crest of the ring, denoting that family. So this speaks of reconciliation, of authority. The prodigal probably lost the ring his original family ring probably lost it or sold it or pawned it or swapped it. And so as soon as the father saw him, he saw how he was dressed and he looked at his hands and there was no ring. Give him back his authority. He's my child. He's my son. And I want him to have the authority, my authority. What a beautiful picture of God's forgiveness towards the prodigals. I know that they think it's so hard to come back, so undeserving, and are undeserving, but the Father's grace is wonderful. And then the shoes. We'll call these the shoes of restoration. And put sandals on his feet, slaves didn't wear shoes, only sons. So everything he's doing is telling him, you're my son. You're my son. See, I've forgiven you. 
you're my son. The robe, the ring, the shoes. And before he could even say those words, make me as one of your hired servants. He never got to say that. <laughs> Father just stopped in mid-sentence. Embraced him, kissed him, hugged him. Didn't let him go any further. Didn't have to make that big long speech. The fact that he says, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. The fact that he said that was all the Father needed to hear because that was repentance. That was true repentance. And restoration always follows true repentance. And this is full restoration. He had walked away. He had stumbled. He had fallen. He had lost his footing in life. Asaph, the psalmist in Psalm 73, when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, he says, my steps, I stumbled, he says, my feet were almost gone. Hmm. But he come back. And here's this son whose feet were gone, who had stumbled, who had fallen. But the father draws him back and welcomes him into the house. In Psalm 40, verse 1, it says, verse 2, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the mary clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. Hmm. And this is the wonderful thing that the Lord does for the prodigal. Even though they had slipped and fallen and lost their footing in life. But the Lord lifts them up, puts shoes on their feet, and gets them to walk again and not to stumble and fall. And then we have the Feast of Rejoicing. Verse 23 and 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? Sounds like it to me anyway. Dead and alive, lost and found. The wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2 and 1, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But thank God, John 1 and 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. I am come that you might have life, and that you might have it more abundantly. This, my son, was dead. Because sin brings death, doesn't it? What is death? What is spiritual death? Separation from God. He was separated from the Father, he was in the far country. And even though he wasn't physically dead, he was spiritually dead. And the father knew it. He was dead. Because he had repented and returned, he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Notice in this trilogy of parables, there was always something lost and always something found. The sheep was lost. 
coin was lost. The son was lost. But they were all found. And by the way, also notice, if you read the three parables, also notice how that in the first one, where it is the lost coin, sorry, the lost sheep, it's the shepherd who goes out looking for the sheep and goes to where it is and brings it back. And in the lost coin, it's the woman who sweeps the whole house looking for it until she finds it. She goes to where it is and brings it back rejoicing. But in this parable, the father stays where he is because it's not a sheep, it's not a coin, it's a son with a will and a mind and a heart and choices and decisions to make. So the father waits until there's repentance. That's all he's been waiting for. Because once he repented, he would come back. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul, dead and alive, lost and found? This is the gospel within the gospel in this parable. Then he says, bring the fatted calf and let us eat and be merry. The Bible says there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. <laughs> then over 99 just men who need repentance. There is joy in heaven. There must be a great roar go up in heaven when a prodigal comes back. I was watching the, uh, the British Open at Royal Lytham there, just the golf there, just a few weeks ago. And in the last round, the last nine holes, young Australian man, brilliant golfer, four shots ahead, just had to stroll in to win. That's all he had to do. My granny could have done it. But coming up from the back was Ernie Els, the great South African. He's in his 40s now. Last major he won was 10 years ago. And Ernie Els puts this great big long putt. He just drains it. And such a roar goes up with the gallery that's following him that it reverberates all around the course. And that young man heard it. And he knew what it was. And then the next hole, the young man drops a shot. Then the next hole, there's another roar goes up. And it's Ernie Els with another birdie. <laughs> And the young man dropped the next shots. In fact, he dropped the next four shots. And Ernie L comes to the last hole. And he sinks for a birdie, the last putt. And such a roar went up, you'd have heard it all over the country. And he won the Open. I think he's 42. He won the Open Championship. And I can't imagine whenever a politician comes back, Heaven's a big place, you know. I can't imagine there's a big roar goes up and there's great rejoicing. Particularly maybe with the family of that prodigal that's come back, that's gone before. Maybe an old granny and a granddad that's prayed for years and then they died, went to the glory. The news comes back. Your grandson, your granddaughter has just returned. <laughs> what a roar would go up there, eh? Great rejoicing. By the way, the elder brother heard the roar. He heard the rejoicing. He heard the celebration. He was out in the fields. He came back and says, what's going on? 
What's all that racket? <laughs> Arnott says of the feast, it indicates the joy of a forgiving God over a forgiven man and the joy of a forgiven man in a forgiving God. That's cause for rejoicing, is it not? And then finally, the kiss. I'm taking this a little bit out of sync here. The kiss, and we'll say that's the kiss of relationship. He fell on his neck and he kissed him. Actually, it literally means he smothered him in kisses. He kissed him over and over and over again. In spite of all of that pig dung on him. Try to be so blunt about that. And there's nothing smells worse than a piggery. Whenever I was courting my wife, she lived in a little house out in the prairie. Literally, it was two field lengths to get to her house. And there was a piggery just up the road. And if the wind blew the wrong way, it wasn't very pleasant. Of course, she's a country lass. She was well used to it. That was all right. But here's the father. And he hugs and he kisses and he embraces. And he may have had the look of the far country upon him. He had the clothes of the far country upon him. He had the smell of the far country upon him. But it didn't matter to that old dad because he loved his son. He was just so delighted, so full of joy in seeing his prodigal return. One writer said, once enfolded in his fatherly arms, there was no casting up of sins. Did you notice that? Would we have been so gracious? Would we have not sat them down and said, now listen, let me just give you a word of advice. Now listen, let me just tell you now before you come back, there's none of that. There's none of it. He didn't have to. He took one look at the sun and he knew that he'd repented. He knew. No big detailed conversations required. Repentance was done. Restoration was complete. He said that God kisses the past into forgetfulness. Isn't it a wonderful story? And I don't know why I shared that today. But I really, really felt strongly to share it. And I'm not saying there's even a prodigal in the house today. But you may know one. And you may be praying for one. And I want you to be encouraged to hold on praying for that prodigal. Because the father's heart will be so blessed when he or she returns. Apart from you being blessed. But the great heart of the father will rejoice when the prodigals will come back. And my guess is that amongst all of us here, we all know a prodigal somewhere, don't we? We all know a backslider. Somebody says backslider is the biggest denomination in the country. I think it is. So we all know backsliders, prodigals, and we need them to come back. Johnny said earlier when he was leading the worship, we need to pray for family members. We need to pray for loved ones. We need to pray for friends. We need to pray for them. 
constantly that they'll come back into the fold. And you never know how far or how near they are because they probably won't tell you. Because if they did, you'd preach at them, wouldn't you? Because that's what I've done in the past. Because that's her tendency, isn't it? Give them half a chance and just say one thing, we're in there. So that's why oftentimes they don't say anything. But if we pray for them and believe for them and trust for them and believe that the Spirit of God can draw them back and that repentance will come and they'll come back into the fold again. Amen? Let's pray.